that's okay. Good morning, especially to those of you uh, joining us online this morning. We're so excited that you've chosen to, to get up. Maybe you're still in your pajamas. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, like I said, when, when Chris and I were on vacation earlier this summer, uh, we got to sit and, and watch on our, our balcony of the, the room we were at, and it was just wonderful to sit outside and, and get to do that. Um, now, we were in Jamaica, so it was way, way more wonderful, but that's okay. It's, it's all good. It was so much fun to get to do that. Uh, it, this is an exciting time for so many reasons uh, in the life of the church. Uh, one of the things that, uh, as a youth minister, over the years, I mean, I, I was really doing that for about 22 years. And as, as I was doing that, you would talk to, to pastors and you'd just observe the church as a whole. So churches, places, you know, different things. And, and you'd wonder, like, is what we're doing relevant? Is what we're doing important? Is what we're doing making a difference at all? And you would see that, and you would see the life changes. And what you would see in youth ministry was that life change began to, to, to take place in students' lives when they realized that this group that they were part of was this big family. And, and they came each week. Yes, they came, and, and they heard about Jesus. Yes, we, we talked about Scripture, but they came every week and added that to this family relationship and the conversations they would have with their small group leaders and this family that would develop. And then you began to learn that that's ultimately why they were there, was the community that Jesus had given them in that. And I would always look at adult church and go, is that what adult church is like? Or do people just come in for an hour and run away as fast as they can to get to lunch or to get to whatever afterwards and then not, you know, they're not there and it's not convenient to be there? And I began to think that, you know, I think if a big people church, as we called it, was a little more like student ministry in that world, and it was about family, it was about coming together and longing to be, you can't wait till that next Sunday to gather together with all of your friends and your family again and study the Word of God. If big people church was just a little more like that, then just maybe we'd be on to something. Who knew, Right? Because I was not looking to ever be a part of this arena at that point in time. But that's exactly what God wants us to do. And that's why this series is so important. So we want to welcome you to week two, actually, of Hope is Here. We're looking at the hope that we find first and foremost in our relationship with Jesus Christ. If that is not where your hope in this world is found, I guarantee you're on the wrong path. But then he supplements that. He doesn't just offer his hope to us. He adds to that, and he adds this incredible fellowship, these relationships that we're supposed to develop when we find and we experience life together with one another within the church, the bride of Christ, the family that he created for us because we need each other. The goal then is to get those that God has blessed even more connected, those that God blesses us with as time goes on, even more and more connected with him first and foremost but then with each other, the family, the, the church. And when we do that, then we draw in those that are searching, those that are hurting, those that are burdened by the troubles in life that we spoke of last week. Last week, Jesus invited us to find rest in him. And who doesn't need some rest from time to time in this world in which we live? Rest where we can, he will find us, us hope, yes, but he'll find us peace when we offer him our burdens, and when we share our burdens with one another in this life, we got to know we don't have to walk this life alone. Too many people are trying to do this life alone, and we're seeing the tragic consequences all around us because the reality is this is where hope is found, not this building, no, 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 this family in Christ, that relationship with Christ and that relationship with one another. 
And if we're honest, all of us, whether longtime believer or brand new person just learning about Jesus, if we're really honest with ourselves and we look at our lives, we realize we are all in need of hope, at least from time to time, even when we think we have it all together. Perhaps our need of hope, though, doesn't stem like last week from weariness, from the burdens of life, but maybe that hope that we need now stems from this brokenness that all of us, once again, have experienced. Some of us are going through right now. A couple of weeks ago, I read to you one of Paul's, part of one of Paul's letters, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 4. The, the passage is a very familiar one to a lot of people. Paul writes that we have this treasure stored in these fragile precious jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And then he goes on to say that we are hard-pressed on every side. God knows that, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, we're confused, we're disoriented, but we're not in despair. Why? Because of the hope in Him. We're persecuted, absolutely, we will be more and more and more, but we're not abandoned. He will never leave us. And we will be struck down from time to time, but he will not allow us to be destroyed in any way, shape, or form. Our lives are fragile. All of us have realized that. In fact, the harder we try to hold our lives together, the more we realize that cracks are beginning to appear everywhere all around us. The more we can begin to be overcome by the feeling that our lives are, are truly falling apart. How many of you have ever experienced that at some point in your life? You really feel like your life is just falling apart. It's only by the grace and the mercy and the power of God that He can hold it all together for us if we allow Him. Because after all, He's actually the only one that actually knows where all the pieces truly fit together. He knows our strengths, He knows our weaknesses, and He loves us anyway. Our lives are fragile. No matter what choices we make, we've realized probably in life at this point that our decisions have these things called consequences. Your parents warned you of such things a long, long time ago, but we have a hard time. And sometimes we choose poorly. I have. I'm sure you have as well. We've made mistakes, and at times we've fallen literally into sin. And when that happens, it does begin to feel often like our lives are falling apart. Our, because of our choices, maybe we've got a relationship it kind of fell apart. Because of our choices, maybe we lost a job. Maybe our finances are suffering because of some poor fiscal decisions we've made. Maybe our marriages are strained because of decisions. We, it can leave us hopeless. It can leave us helpless trying to pick up all those pieces and put them back together on our own. We can feel abandoned even by God, even though He never will, because we are at work trying to do everything on our own. And it's in times like these that people long for hope. Now, they may not know what that is, but they sense something is out of place, something is wrong, and they can't fix it on their own, and they're searching. Now, it is truly a terrible feeling, and if you've experienced, you know what I'm talking about. It is truly a terrible feeling when your sins are found out. Anybody ever been busted before? <laughs> been exposed before? That reality, being exposed, causes us to feel shame and guilt, because we fall short. We, we're human. We know that happens. Unfortunately, too many people stay there. That's the end of the story for them, but it doesn't have to be the end of the story. Because when Jesus meets you in that place, guess what? There's hope. There's hope in our pain, in our guilt, in our shame when Jesus meets us in that moment. 
Now, there's a story. It's a fairly famous story from John chapter 8. So turn there with me, if you will, of a woman who knows exactly what it felt like to be broken and in need of restoration. Unfortunately, this brokenness and restoration was forced into the open. Jesus is traveling around. He's traveled into town. A group of people gather in the morning at the temple to hear him teach, but his teaching is interrupted by this angry mob of religious leaders who are dragging this woman with them to make an example of her, quite the opposite of what Jesus would do. It says in verse 1 that at dawn, he, Jesus, again in the temple courts where all the people had gathered around him to hear, he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought to him a woman, a woman who was caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery and the law of Moses has commanded us to, to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? Now, John, in retrospect, writes this out, and he fills in the gaps for us. Hey, guys, this wasn't a real situation. Yes, she was caught, but really, they were just trying to make an example of her. The question was a trap for Jesus in order to have basis to make accusations against him. You see, the woman in the story was brought before everyone with this accusation that she was caught in the act of adultery. I, I can't imagine anything other than that literal sentence being true. She was cheating. Now, whether it was on her husband, we don't know if she was married, but for sure, probably the man was at this point. She was apprehended by these men in the middle of the scandal somehow. She would have absolutely been embarrassed. She would have been humiliated. She also would have been fully aware of the consequences of her action according to Mosaic law. She knew death was actually in order for her. And quite honestly, depending on the state of her life, that might not have been a bad option for what she was feeling in the moment. You see, that is what brokenness truly looks like. A broken marriage, a broken woman, a broken reputation. That is rock bottom. Some of us have experienced that. Even if you've never been to that point before, and I pray that you never do, it's a choice that we make to drag ourselves to rock bottom, the consequences of our decisions. All of us, though, have experienced brokenness at some point in our lives. Now, what's most shocking about this story is that the woman seems to just be used here. She's just a pawn in the religious leader's game to try to trap Jesus. They really didn't care one little tiny bit about this woman. Here, the sin was being exploited in front of everyone to catch Jesus, to harm Jesus. It's ironic that they bring her before the forgiver of sins <laughs> to try to expose her and cause him pain. It's interesting, their approach. The woman was caught in the middle. Her sin has been fully now exposed to everyone. Problem is, the teachers didn't bother to actually do their job. If they were doing this correctly, of course, there would have been another party involved here because the man would have been subject to the exact same Jewish punishment as the woman being caught in the act of adultery, yet he's nowhere to be found. He was just as guilty as she was. Our sin, when it is laid bare, is one of the worst and potentially one of the best feelings possible. Now, on one hand, it's horrible, right? Because everyone finds out the truth. But on the other hand, it's wonderful because everyone finally finds out the truth. And you can move on. So here she was, caught in adultery, lying before Jesus. Her fate sealed death was certain at this point until Jesus intervenes in verse 6. But Jesus bent down and he started to write in the sand with his finger. When they kept on questioning, he straightened up and said, okay, let any of you who's without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground at this, those who heard him began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. 
So rather than agree to this woman's death on the account of the Mosaic law, Jesus does something very different. He, first of all, does something not recorded anywhere else in Scripture. It says he stoops down and he begins to write in the sand. Nowhere else is it ever said that Jesus wrote down anything except right here. And did you notice John didn't write down what he wrote? No one knows. There's all kinds of speculation. There's probably entire books written on what Jesus might have possibly written here. We don't know. For some reason, that wasn't revealed to us. I think there's probably a very specific reason. Perhaps he was writing the names of all the men that were there present that day. Maybe he was making a list of their sins right alongside their names, saying, oh yeah, she's guilty, but so are you. <laughs> could, I could have done that. Maybe he was writing out literally the law of Moses. He, he was literally writing down the portion that they were addressing here in this moment. Maybe he was just writing to distract the men and their eyes because they have just drug a woman caught in the act of adultery. Probably if you don't think too hard, you can figure out how she might have been dressed in that moment who were all staring at her, guilty as sin in front of all of them, and he's trying to distract their eyes away from that woman. There's lots of possibilities. We don't know what it was regardless. When the mob pushed for an answer, Jesus stands up and gave them one. He said, okay, great. You guys go right ahead and do that, but I have one little request. If the one of you that's never, ever, ever sinned in your entire life ever, why don't you be the first one to cast a stone? You just go right ahead and kill her. Can you imagine the look on their faces when he said that? They came in with the anger, with the rage, wanting to cast this person. They're trying to get Jesus. They're trying to get rid of her. And all of a sudden, they're confronted with their own sin. What did their face look like. You see, that woman was in a very hopeless situation, except she was in the presence of Jesus Christ, and he alone provided hope for her. And Jesus Christ is in this place, and if you're here today, he is providing hope in this place for you. As much as we are told in our nation, in our Western civilization, that our actions have no consequences, that our behaviors really don't hurt anyone, that our choices are our choices alone, the reality is this, sin does not happen in a vacuum. It has collateral damage. It touches other people. Ultimately, it will become common knowledge. And so as important as it is for the sinner to respond rightly to God's call of repentance and admit their shameful mistake, it's just as important that the church responds rightly as well. We receive hope in the midst of our brokenness when we acknowledge that we have all fallen short and we have all sinned before God. I want to repeat that again. Remember this. We receive hope in the midst of our brokenness when we realize that we have all fallen short and we have all sinned before God. You see, the beauty of the fellowship of the church is that we are able to extend forgiveness and grace to one another because we are all broken people and we are all learning each and every day to live under the grace of God. Jesus is making a point here. And if you look at the scene, you see the church and you also see the church because there's a lot of church that look a lot like those men waiting to cast the stones at whoever it was that was sinning. But you also see a picture of the church that it should be with Jesus Christ present, being the only place this woman could ever, ever go in her entire life to find hope, especially in that moment. He's teaching these religious group a lesson in something called grace. 
you can't throw the first stone because you're all guilty of breaking the law as well. So those men, one by one, begin to drop their stones. John includes the details that it's the old men that drop the stones first and walk away. Their wisdom, their life experience, they realize, oh, the men probably came, the younger men came in all hot and ready to just go crazy, and it took them a little bit longer to realize that they needed to follow suit. But as the dust settles, all we see is Jesus and the woman waiting there. In verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Just like imagining the looks at all those men's faces when Jesus challenged them to be the first to cast the stone, imagine the look on Jesus' face as he looks at this broken, beaten woman and how her countenance must have changed whenever he spoke those words. She was found in brokenness, and all of a sudden, for the first time, she felt hope. Jesus is the only one in the story who doesn't condemn her for her mistakes, the only one that does not want to punish her in that moment for her wrongdoing. Rather, Jesus offers something called grace. There's an old song that uh, you might have learned as a kid, depending on if you grew up in the church or not. It's an old chorus, uh, a little little song, had a few verses, but I remember singing at BBS, uh, talking about his banner over me is love. Do you realize the first word over you and your life is love. This is the truest thing about you. Did you know this? You might not have ever heard this before. The truest thing about you is that you are loved by God. Did you know that? The truest thing about you is you are loved by God. You know who you could share that information with? Everyone. There's not a person walking planet earth that that statement is not true about. The truest thing about them is that they are loved by God. And they might come back and say, oh, I don't even know God. Mm, doesn't matter. He knows you. <laughs> Think of the impact that could have on someone's life, especially someone that's searching. See, God does not determine your value based on how well you perform. Thank you, Jesus, (laughs) for that. He does not determine your value based on your reputation. Again, thank you, Jesus. God calls you valuable because he made you. Your hope is found in a God who loves you just the way you are, but (laughs) who loves you too much to leave you that way. Many today like to leave off verse 11. They don't like that part of the story. The rest of the story is perfect. It is wonderful. See, look how caring and loving Jesus is. That is so awesome. Look, he's so nice. He didn't condemn her. He didn't punish her. Look at the grace and the mercy. Now she can just go live freely and do whatever she wants. No, not at all, actually. That's not exactly what Jesus did there. He didn't condemn her. That's true. But he left her with an expectation. He said, go now and leave your life of sin. That wasn't a question. I don't know if you noticed that or not. That was a command. Go and sin no more, (laughs) simply put. He didn't ask her to do it. He told her. He doesn't condone or okay her sin in any way. He leaves her too much. He loves her too much to leave her in that life of sin to continue to suffer. He knows there's a better path, and he's telling her, this is it. Leave that behind and go this direction. Jesus cares about how we live our lives. He cares about the decisions we make that leave us broken, especially. He wants to expose our sin, but for a very, very different reason. 
The religious leaders wanted to expose our sin to embarrass, to shame, and then try to trap Jesus. But Jesus doesn't expose our sin for that reason at all. Jesus exposes our sin to make us whole, to fix us, to repair us in the life that we are living. Go now and leave that life of sin. I told David I would, I would quote one of his favorite pastors today, Stephen Furtick. Now, he would say this much louder than I will, if you're familiar with Stephen's uh, it, um, presentation style, shall we say. But he says this, God exposes sin not to shame us, but to change us. There's a difference there. He doesn't shame us into our sin. No, he, he wants to change us. He wants us to live a different lifestyle than we did before. You see these men just expose it to shame her and try to trap Jesus. But Jesus exposes our sin to make us whole. He wants to take the broken pieces of our jars of clay and he wants to put them back together because after all, he's the only one that knows how they fit together. And I have incredible, amazing, and wonderful news for you today. If you happen to be broken in this moment, and you feel like maybe everyone around you has a rock in their hand, and they're just waiting to throw it at you, Jesus meets you in this moment, in this place right now. And where Jesus is, there's hope. Now, you've got a choice to make. You get to determine the future here. You can continue to live the life in the same way that you do on that current path, which absolutely is hopeless. Or, or you have another option, and that's to simply bring that before Jesus, confess those sins before him, and allow him to restore you, to walk in a new life. When we confess our sin in, and believe in Christ and we are found in him, then he says in Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. You are made new. The old ways of living are in the past, and God does something new within you. I wish I could describe to you exactly what that is, but I can't because it's different in every single one of us. Because what needs changed in you might be different than what needs changed in me, but I can sure share my story with you, and you can begin to experience that same life. Here at our church, it's nothing more than a gathering of a whole bunch of sinners who are learning every day how to live in this new life that God has given us. And the church should be the place where grace is more readily found than anywhere else on earth. Now, it's not, she's not always had that reputation, and that's a shame. But we are all sinners, forgiven by the grace of God. We all need to extend that to others. There are no exceptions to that. The grace of God, the grace found from those with whom we fellowship, those all just increase our hope daily. Now, I read a story in, in preparing this message from a pastor. Now, this pastor's name is Juan Carlos Ortiz. What a name, right? Like, that's just like powerful. Juan Carlos Ortiz, that is me. I just, I'm thinking about changing my name. I don't know. What an introduction, right? Anyway, um, he, he likens this Christian life that we live in to a trapeze artist. Now, unfortunately, I know some of you in the room have never seen a trapeze artist because the circus has kind of gone by the wayside. But if you ever have, I mean, he, kind of a Cirque du Soleil thing, but that's not really, that's more, no, it's not quite the same. He, he describes it this way. If you've watched a trapeze show before, you know that it's breathtaking. We wonder at the dexterity and the timing. We gasp. <gasps> 
as they almost drop the little tiny person that they're throwing back and forth all over the sky in front of us. Now, in most cases, there is a net underneath, isn't there? And when the trapeze artists fall, and they do from time to time, they jump right back up, they bounce right back up on to the high wire. It's an incredible thing. In Christ, we live on that trapeze, and the whole world is watching us. Now, what they should be saying is, look, look how well they live. Look how well they love one another. Look at how well the husbands treat their wives. Look, aren't they just the best workers in the factories? Aren't they just the best employees, the best people to work with, the best office neighbors, the best, yes, students? Look at how this church loves her community. Wow. That's what it's like to live on the trapeze, to show the world what Christ has done in you. But you know what? We are all going to slip and fall as the world watches. So what happens when we slip? Well, guess what? There's still a net there, absolutely, to catch us. The the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ has provided forgiveness for all of our trespasses. So both the net and the ability to even hang on up above as people watch is due to the grace of God. Now, of course, when we do fall, we can't continually sleep on the net Because if you were at the show, you would think that really isn't a trapeze artist if they're still lying on the net, just like they should look at us and go, that really isn't a Christian, is it? Look at how they're living their life. This morning, I get to invite anyone with those broken pieces to come before God and offer those broken pieces up to him if you believe that God can make something beautiful of your life once again, because I assure you, he absolutely can. I want to invite you to trust in the community that God has placed you in in this moment and to bring those things before God so that you can begin to live out this wonderful, grace-filled life that we all have access to. Stop trying to do it alone. This isn't a public shaming like those men. This is a private moment between you and your Lord and Savior. And we just want to join you in that. It's an incredible gift that we have to come before God anytime, any moment, but in this moment especially. Father God, as we consider all that you have done before us, as we look at our lives and we consider the amazing gifts that we have, everyone in this room has been broken to one degree or another. Some have hit absolute rock bottom. Sometimes it seems that those have hit rock bottom, they they respond in a different way to those of us that maybe haven't, and we, we just continually try to handle things on our own the sooner we realize that we don't have to hit rock bottom. We just have to realize that we are not in control. Father, we can't fix this on our own. This relationship issue, this job issue, this financial issue, this sin issue that we've been hiding forever, we we cannot fix this on our own. We have to turn it over to the one and only one that can restore us. He wants the sin to be brought out into the light so that we can be made whole, so that we can be put back together. I pray that your spirit moves in those individuals that need to hear that this morning and that they will fully embrace your plan of restoration for their life. Father, you redeem us. You bought us back with the sacrifice of your blood, and now you long to make us whole. You long for your spirit to envelop our entire life and put us back together so that we may live this life in your ways. Father, we love you, and we are so thankful for your presence here this morning. 
Let your spirit move.